This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. We're talking real money. It's the Talking Real Money podcast. My goodness, my voice sounds even deeper. <laughs> I'm a little raspy today. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our uh, our little thing that we do here about money. It's called Talking Real Money because, well, basically it says what we do. We talk about money and we try to keep it real. Real money. And uh, we... Uh, try to share different topics, things that we see in the media that we believe have a message for individual investors, for regular savers, people planning for their future, for their retirement. And uh, we really do keep an eye out for these, these underlying messages. And there was an incredibly powerful multiple incredibly powerful underlying lessons in a recent piece in the New York Times that was uh, basically an excerpt from a new book written by, uh, oh, now I forgot the guy's name, uh, Rob, Rob Copeland. Copeland. Yeah. Rob Copeland. The book's called The Fund, Ray Dalio, Bridgewater Associates, and the Unraveling of a Wall Street Legend. I'm Don McDonald, Tom Cox over there. We both thoroughly enjoyed this article. I don't know if I'd read the whole book, but I enjoyed the article about Ray Dalio, who is the founder of the world's, or what was at least, the world's largest hedge fund at $168 billion. And it's it's about how it got that big and then how things fell apart, Tom. It's a fascinating. It, honestly, this is it's a lengthy uh, article in the New York Times, and I'm like you. I'm trying to decide on the book. I can't decide, but we'll see. Christmas is coming. Uh, Ray Dalio is a name that if you follow investing, you've heard because he's somebody that's out there a lot. He runs Bridgewater Associates, which started 50 years ago, and in the article points out from his Manhattan apartment, um, and now manages 168 billion, or did manage 168 billion. He's recognized as a genius because, for example, yeah. it's always the they always hanging on one thing. 2008, right when everybody else lost money, not everybody else, but basically everybody well, else. Most of us did. And yeah. Ray made nine percent while stocks dropped 37 percent. So now you're a genius. Now you're a guy that. And so what happens? Well, you can see what happens. Billions of dollars pour into your fund. Then what happens? <laughs> well, because it's fascinating. Because that's the that's the the thing is that I can't. I, in fact, just to go way back in time, um, I, I I was talking to a friend and he went to a uh, to Babson College, and his kids are applying to Babson College, and I'm going Babson, Babson, Babson. Why do I know Babson College? Well, it was named for Roger Babson who was a guy who called the crash in 1929 and became really rich and famous because of that one event that he got right. And Ray supposedly, Dalio again here, is, is supposed to have 
a prodigious skill at spotting and making money from big picture global economic or political changes. And like interest rates, right? That would be right. one where people say, ah, oh, you were on the inside. You kind of knew what was going on. Uh, but the book exposes the fact that while Ray and Bridgewater tell you that there's a team, they tell you that there's this process. There's a formula. People, there's yeah. a formula where people bring these ideas to Ray and his group and they say, what about this? What about that? But it's based on an automated, long-time rules-based process, right? Data-driven approach. Um, but the reality is quite different if you believe the book, right? Which that's another question I guess you could ask how is this reliable? Uh, but the reality, according to the author is that's not at all what happens. Yes, they do have this group and they do get together once a week and they do pitch all these ideas, but then Ray sits on his throne, I guess, and says, Nah, that's not right. Because I talked to the vice premier of China who says this is what's going to happen in China. I'm going to follow my gut and do that instead. It's absolutely fascinating. And then, of course, the other part of all this, Don, is there again, they brought in Harry, the, you know, the guy that uh, Harry Markopoulos. Yeah, Markopoulos. The, the, yeah, figured out uh, the figured out uh, now uh, Bernie Madoff's Bernie team mm-hmm. and went to the SEC and the SEC didn't believe him anyway. And he went and looked at everything and said, this is a. What do you say? Ponzi scheme. Ponzi scheme. I was waiting for you. Well, to but that. it turned out the SEC said, no, it's, it's not, not really a yeah. Ponzi scheme. I know. It's just. It was just sheer luck, but he did do a few things that were questionable. And one of the things that really sticks out, and this is my problem with much of Wall Street, is that they'll say anything. They will Ah. lie through their teeth. And there's one line in this article that I think is incredibly telling. And this is from their form ADV. You can actually even go look this up. He shows, or they show, that in, in their ADV that or ADV, their uh, financial statements, I should yep, say, different. that showed that five different trusts that owned by the Dalio family, five different trusts, each hold at least 25%, but less than 50% of Bridgewater. Now, how can five trusts each hold at least 25% of anything? Because mm, do the math. Isn't that, didn't they do that movie called the producers or something where they sold everybody 20%? <laughs> yeah. You got 20, you got 20. Yeah. 25% owned by five different families. <laughs> Add the numbers. Up. At the low end, that's 125%. But I think for the average investor, the takeaways again, number one, there in the, in this article, again, written by Mr. Copeland, who wrote the book, he says, there's two versions of how Bridgewater invested all this money. Dalio told the public and clients that there was this meritocracy of ideas and these principles that they used, that they held this meeting, as I said, that everybody went in the meeting and said, let's do this, this, and this. But he says, Copeland says, that's completely irrelevant to what Bridgewater actually did with the money. That uh, Mr. Dalio was Bridgewater, and Mr. Dalio decided Bridgewater's investments. And that he sat around and thought about, well, this, that, and everything, and made those decisions completely on his own, which... It turned out after really 2009, the decisions have not been that great. The returns really have not been uh, as good as what people would have expected. In fact, there's been some really poor bets along the way. That's the takeaway, I think, for most people. He believed his own press clippings. He believed that he alone 
he alone was smarter than the market. Does that ring a bell with any of you? Be honest with yourselves. Oh, I feel really good about the medical sector. I really think that this stock has a long way to go. I'm really sure that interest rates are going to rise or fall or whatever it is you're sure of. You believe you're smarter than the market, right? You and know you do. Indeed, Don't lie. That would cost, Mr. according to the, the book, he shorted the U.S. dollar for a decade, which was a bad trade. Then someone looked into all of the trades, someone inside his firm and did a study, showed that Mr. Dalio had been, this gets back to what you just said, wrong as much as he had been right. His ideas were often akin to a coin flip, right? And I think Gosh, anybody can flip a familiar. coin. Yeah. Uh, and he just balled up the piece of paper when they gave him that study and threw it away. Uh, which is <laughs> interesting in and of itself. Yeah, that's a comment. That's a it, telling comment. I and mean, remember back when we used to do a lot of of classes, live classes. Oh, yeah. One of the things I loved to do in a class was to give people free money because you know nobody nobody will turn down free money, even if it is just five pennies. And you used to do the coin flip writing class, well, right? A penny. It was a penny. It was, was it a penny or a nickel? Penny. I can't remember. It was early days of Vestry. I think it was a penny because we couldn't afford nickels. (laughs) Probably Um, And what we did is for a few minutes, everyone in the room flipped coins. And those who got more than five heads, which was only a few, were, you know, if you do 10 tosses and they got more than five heads, then those were the best managers in the country and the ones who got more than five tails. Well, they were the worst managers in the country. Turns out it was very much like a bell curve where you had a few great managers, like the ones with seven or eight heads, the great ones. And you had a few that were good at the six, seven range. And then you had most of the room in the five, the four, five, six range. And then you had a few down at the low end who were the worst managers. The, the point is, you can be apparently brilliant and merely be lucky. Yeah. And by the way, I'm going to have to keep start keeping track of, you know, I flip a coin two times a week for the two games I ref every week. I'm going to start keeping track of that. See how that got, I never really thought about it. That's interesting. Oh, well, now check this though. There's, there was a study done that showed that if whatever the side of the coin that was facing up was the winner in the coin toss. More than 50%. There you go. So if you want a team to win, you can give them a little edge, point <laughs> your coin up. I usually don't know that until I've been in the game for a while. All right. What what are my takeaways? I, th- we just said we're not sure yeah, if we're going to read the There are lessons here. Yeah. There are what lessons. Are the lessons? I mean, what are your what, lessons? My lessons are, number one, people ask us about this all the time. You guys kind of say just use indexes, but some of the funds you use are not indexes. That's true, but they are rules-based. This clearly is an example of something that is not rules-based. This is active management. This is fly by the seat of my pants. This is how Ray Dalio feels about things. And in some ways, by the way, as you pointed out, Don, it's a little bit insider too, because there's a lot of people they talk to that are telling them this and whispering about this This is what you got to know for the future. But clearly, this and is what's not curious, what we though, Tom, is that they claimed it was kind of rules based. Yeah, they did. But then again, when they peeled it back, 
this is exactly that. This is a good example of no rules. This is somebody who believes they're smarter, as you said, than the market. They're making those decisions based on that. It's his place. He makes the calls, which brings me to number three. And how many times have we seen this in this business? Whether it was Stephen Cohen, who was previously the hedge fund manager that everybody respected, et cetera, and had his own TV show called Billions, I guess. Big ego equals small returns. Um, We've seen this so many times over and over and over again where somebody gets so big, so powerful, and then suffers poor returns for a period of time. But I really think the active and no rules are the lessons people should take away from this and pay attention to because this isn't the last time we're going to be talking about this either. I guarantee it. No, and here are my my uh, here is my takeaway, my lesson from this. It is believed in the, uh, the the halls of all of the vast institutional money groups, pension funds, and the like, that the ultimate in returns is going to come from the really great hedge funds like Bridgewater and others. That is the belief that that they are because institutional investors are special, that they deserve the quality management that they get from a Bridgewater, and it's worth paying the 2% and 20% of profits. It's better than getting into an actively managed mutual fund, which is the second best for them because you've got somebody brilliant managing the money. But the fact of the matter is stories like Mr. Dalio's and a host of others, I mean, they're, these stories are legion. Hedge fund managers have no advantage unless it's, of course, what Wall Street calls the information advantage, which which is a euphemism for insider trading. Indeed. Uh, they might have that one, but that's an illegal one. Uh, th- so therefore, if the hedge funds can't beat the market consistently and actively managed mutual funds can't beat their benchmarks consistently which we, again we see over and over and over again just look at the semiannual spiva study from standard and poors you'll see it right there so if the hedge funds can't at 2% and the mutual funds can't at 1% the active mutual funds what makes you think you you without the information advantage without the ability to research without the ability to meet with the premier of china how do you think you can beat the market you are in a word and i hate to be harsh but if you think you can beat the market consistently based on some knowledge you have you are truly delusional i'm sorry but you are because it doesn't happen. You might get lucky and you could get lucky for a long time, but that doesn't mean you're smarter than the market. All right. Time for questions. This comes from Randy in Muckleteo, Washington. You can say it, but don't try to spell it. Newly newly issued I-bonds have an interest rate of 5.27%, including a fixed rate portion of 1.3 and a variable portion at 3.94 annualized. Mm-hmm. I have purchased I purchased twenty thousand dollars of I bonds in twenty twenty two, taking advantage of the high variable rates offered at the time. However, the fixed rate portion of those bonds was zero. Mm-hmm. I'm considering selling the older bonds, losing ninety days of interest, less than one percent in the process, and replacing them with newly issued I bonds, having the one point three percent fixed rate portion for the entire thirty year life. The early withdrawal penalty would be recovered in less than a year. This seems like a no brainer. What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, with again, if it, you're doing it for the right reasons, you're doing because you want the inflation protection in your portfolio. So you're not saying, oh, because it's not nine anymore, I'm going to sell it. Um, I think the fixed component adds some value because that's a lock. So and it's okay to make you still move. get the interest rate adjustment. Um, I, I again, I don't think. In the grand scheme of things, it's going to make a whole heck of a lot of difference, but that's predicting the future, which I don't do. So based on today, as long as you're not trading it, you're just doing it, bing, bang, done. Sure, why not? Okay. And I want to make sure we're clear on one other thing around this, because for those of you who decided, what, say a month ago or a month and a half ago, when when you could move money into safe things and make almost 5%, you can see how tragic timing can be there was a new piece on and i know it's not a greatly reliable news source but they do have sometimes have the facts on market timing on cnbc today that showed if you missed the eight days this year the eight biggest trading days you missed basically the entire return of the s p 500 that is up somewhere around 14 percent at the time of this recording so Timing out of something like stocks into something like I-bonds or into something like treasuries is a bad idea. Don correctly points out, if this is part of your fixed income portfolio, that's fine. But Designed moving for inflation out. protection. Exactly. But if it's, if it's a move because I see a shiny object, that's a bad thing. All right. Time for one more from Adam in Virginia Beach, Virginia. It says, my employer uses Vanguard. I'm currently in their large, mid, and small cap funds. However, they have mid and small cap value options with VMVIX and VISVX. They also have international growth, VWILX. What kind of allocations would you recommend for these? And should I move from mid and small to their value counterparts, counterparts or hold each? In other words, I can access not just small cap funds. I can access small cap value, mm-hmm. and I can do the same thing with mid cap and international. What's your take? Well, we believe in diversification. This is not going to be too complicated. We believe you should overweight value. Um, And uh, the value is going to generally have a very small portion, if any of its allocation toward growth, which is going to, you're going to have growth in the other, you're going to have growth in value in just the mid and the small and the large. You're going to have both. You're going to have just value in the small cap value or a a leaning toward mostly value. So should it based on tons of past research potentially improve your return? Sure. Yes. Is it going to be dramatic? None of this, none of these little changes are going to be dramatic. The difference in return between the small cap and the small cap value over decades is likely only to be in the you know fraction of a percent to maybe a percent if you're lucky range. I would divide it in half. I would have yeah. small cap and then half in small cap value and do the same thing in international if you can, just to have the exposure to that asset class. And if you can do it in large too, I would do it. Yep. Just have six funds. Bingo. So it's more work, as Don said. It's not, not going to be something lot. you wake up the next day and go, ho, ho, look at I made like 3% more. That's not going to happen, but over the long haul, we would expect it to add a little bit of return. So it's a trade-off because you got to do more work to get there. And you know, a fraction of a percent here and a fraction of a percent there, and pretty soon you're talking real money. 
You know that. Indeed we are. Thank you, Everett Dirksen. Okay, so uh, before we get away, I just looked at the calendar, and I think I have this right. Uh, by the time this airs, Thanksgiving is going to be just a few days away, right? I mean, it's coming up here fast. I don't know what you're doing a for week. Thanksgiving. A week. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting out of town, but I think you're hanging so around, I. right? Yeah. You're, oh, you're, no. you're leaving too? Yeah, we're, we're doing a best of on okay. the radio station All for right. Thanksgiving. But I wanted to mention that this generally is a good time to start thinking about do I dare say it the next year and having a plan in place to start the next year is such a great idea. And we'll review your situation. Absolutely free, no obligation and no high pressure sales tactics that I know of. We don't believe in those. Oh, that's right. We don't believe in them. So um, you simply go to talkingrealmoney.com, talkingrealmoney.com and click on meet an advisor, meet an advisor. It's we not don't easy. believe in those things. And because we don't believe that, 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 that they they're good for us. We that they tend to make people testy. They do high pressure sales yeah, stuff. I agree. I mean, I know every time I I go to a car dealer, it's like, oh please, people. Oh, you know, I'm picking up my car on uh, on Friday this week. Or you will have picked it up on Friday. Yes, I will. <laughs> by the time this gets I'm on shifted. the radio on the podcast, yeah. yes, I'll have the car. Yeah, there's room right. in the garage. It'll be there. So you got Plug the garage play. cleaned out. I, yes, it's shocking. Well, clean might not be the right word. But Things there's room for two enough. cars? Three cars. You have a three car? We have a three car. Oh, yeah, you're right. I just, yeah. there was so much stuff I over know. there. there I was never, you couldn't tell. It was like. I didn't even know there was a part of a garage yeah. there. So, yeah. it's So been, are all three of you going to fit in the garage? It's, I measured it. It should work. I'm, my pull-in will have to be very careful. I'll tell you that much. So Look it'll be tricky. Tom. Tom has three cars and two pizza carts, and I just have one car. <laughs> Don't feel Sad. bad about yourself, okay? Sad. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. And again, remember that uh, a little bit here and a little bit there. And once again, you're talking real money. The opinions and views expressed on this podcast were current on the date recorded. Opinions, estimates, forecasts, and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice, including any forward-looking estimates or statements which are based on certain expectations and assumptions. Although information and opinions given have been obtained from or based on sources believed to be reliable, no warranty or representation is made as to their correctness, completeness, or accuracy. Information presented on the podcast is not personalized investment advice from Appella Wealth. The views and strategies described may not be suitable for everyone. This podcast does not identify all the risks, direct or indirect, or other considerations which might be material to you when entering any financial transaction. Past performance does not guarantee future results, and profitable results cannot be guaranteed. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for informational, educational, and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. The podcast is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by a Appella Wealth, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Please see Appella Wealth's ADV Part 2A on our website for information regarding Appella's fees and services. Appella Capital, LLC, DBA Appella Wealth is an investment advisory firm registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. The firm only transacts business in the states where it is properly registered or excluded or exempt from registration requirements. Registration with the SEC or any state securities authority does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Appella does not provide tax or legal advice, and nothing either stated or implied here should be inferred as providing such advice. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and important disclosure related to performance of any specific index or fund quoted in this podcast. Is anybody still listening?